This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy. Good afternoon, everybody, and you're very welcome to this uh, webinar uh, being conducted on behalf of the Institute for International and European Affairs in Dublin. Um, I'm delighted that our guest today is Dr. Andrew McCormick, who is a former Director General of International Relations and the lead official on Brexit for the Northern Ireland Executive, uh, a post which he took up after a very distinguished career in the Northern Ireland uh, Civil Service. Uh, Andrew will speak for about 20 minutes or thereabouts, and then he'll take questions and answers. And we'll finish about, about four o'clock. Um, the whole session, both the initial um, uh, chat and the question and answer uh, are on the record. Uh, and please feel free to ask your questions uh, or via the, the Zoom platform uh, and we'll get to them after Andrew's initial presentation. Andrew, you're very welcome. Uh, many thanks indeed, that is, it's uh, very good of you to, uh, to host. Uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to IIEA for this opportunity. Uh, there's been so much comment, many events uh, on the Windsor framework um, in a very short space of time it's been around. Uh, and I'm, I'm just very privileged to have, have the, this, this opportunity to, uh, to contribute. Uh, and I hope that we'll have an interesting discussion uh, when we get into the Q&A phase. So uh, just by way of outset, uh, the, the it achieves, the, the framework achieves a delicate balance in both practical and constitutional terms. If, and it's quite a big if, if it's applied as it's written and the hope and expectation is that it will lead to de-dramatization, to, to borrow a, a, a word uh, that's got a bit of history in the Brexit debate. Um, that's, that's the hope that, that there'll be a a settling down into a new stability. And I think so many people, especially businesses uh, in Northern Ireland and elsewhere, need stability and certainty rather than any new tensions. So I'm not intending to do a, a detailed legal analysis. There, there are other, others who have, have done that. I want to just stay, hopefully, mainly at the big picture level, uh, looking at the thing in, in three, three sections. A little, bit, a little bit about the practical issues around the movement of goods, which are, are at the heart of the issue. Touch, touch briefly on, on the competition issues, but probably take a bit longer on the whole question around sovereignty and democratic deficit and, and all of that, given the uh, extent of attention that there's been on that. Just important just to start by remembering that all, there's been so, so many horror stories talked about why on earth should there be restrictions on this or that, be it plants or soil or pets or whatever, in, in relation between GB and NI? And the short answer is and was, well, it's because the land border is open. That's that's the, the choice that has been made. Uh, and uh, wh whatever the origin of that issue, there can't be any doubt that uh, keeping the land border open is a, a good thing that any attempt to do anything else would, would have extremely serious consequences, whatever may be said otherwise about that. Um, the, in 2019, 
the approach agreed in the withdrawal agreement was very simplistic. It was the full application of EU law, the breakthrough that is now represented, and it's been a journey towards this. It's not come all, all of a sudden, is to adopt a risk-based approach. Now that takes us into complexity and compromise. And that's therefore difficult. It's why the fine print and, and fine detail of all of this needs to be understood. But that has a far better chance of leading to a stable and, and meaningful way forward. So just on, on movement of goods and all those issues, um, the Windsor framework enables a wider scope for the green lane and red lane idea than I th thought possible. I, 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 do, I do claim to have originated that five years ago, uh, and there's reports and evidence of that. Uh, I, I didn't see then, or even up to quite recently, how agri-food goods could be included in that concept in, in the green lane. Uh, and what I was told originally way back in, in October of, of 17 about the EU's zero tolerance for risk on plant and animal health related issues, that's being mitigated by a combination of information requirements, labelling, and there is an important reference in the EU fact sheet to Green Lane agri-food goods continuing to comply with EU standards. I think that's, that's quite an important point. Certainly the, the, the balance of opening things up in a very significant way while still having proportionate and adequate protections for the single market. That's, that's, the, that's why it's so complicated and detailed. But the two sides seem to have settled that that is possible. Um, and that's very important. The compromises on parcels, on pets, on medicines are very important uh, and are, are at the level of practical operation. Uh, so again, I'm not going to go into detail on those. They're, they're significant improvements. The wider issue of at-risk goods, as referred to in the protocol, uh, clarification and improvement of how that works, that's, that's very, very important. It's been one of the trouble spots uh, ever since the Internal Market Bill of 2020. Second phase then, just to talk a little bit about uh, the competition issues. Again, all logical and necessary from an EU point of view, if you're going to have Northern Ireland participation in the in the EU single market. Uh, the change that's come about on state aid is, is, is mainly a clarification of, of what reachback means, uh, the, the need for demonstration of a material impact on risk to competition. Um, that, that's helpful, uh, again, given that that was such a central issue throughout the whole main negotiations between the UK and the EU on, the, on what led to the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Uh, the, the level playing field, all of those concepts are, are so important. Uh, similarly, on, on VAT, uh, there's compromise uh, on some details, but still important elements of protection for the EU against distortions of trade. So, so again, those are, they represent uh, logical and reasonable compromises. So at that level, all of those things look remarkably sensible and um, you know, 
I, I certainly struggle to see material ways to move on what's been agreed. They, they, the, all that, a lot of the emotion in all of this is about sovereignty. And of course, even the things we've talked about already uh, can be looked at through uh, a sovereignty lens, if you like. <clears throat> but just going back to first principles, um, this actually came up in quite, a, quite an interesting discussion about yesterday in the Constitution Committee of the um, Scottish Parliament, where issues around sovereignty were, were being discussed in the context of um, regulatory divergence from a, within the UK. But in principle, you know, all sovereign nations, maybe except North Korea, they share sovereignty in many ways on the basis of judgments about their self-interest. So it's been claimed that uh, no other country would tolerate the position that applies to Northern Ireland under the withdrawal agreement. Well, let's just drill into that a little bit. The, the position arises as a result of a sovereign decision by the UK Parliament in 2020, which reflected the withdrawal agreement in the Conservative Manifesto. The facts of what was being entered into were known. They were maybe denied, distorted or downplayed by the British government at that time, which was remains a very serious issue. But Parliament, if Parliament is sovereign, it had the right to approve the withdrawal agreement. Secondly, the protocol had the majority, the support of a majority of elected representatives in Northern Ireland. So the argument that, that consent was not given before a constitutional change is quite weak. And in extremists could have been tested by a referendum. I'm not sure that's been talked about all that much because um, it's a difficult thing to do. I just wonder how unions would, would react to if there had been a, a, a referendum and support by the population for the protocol. So just in, in, important to think about these things in the context of the uh, constitutional settlement that is represented by the, um, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Just then, on being a rule taker, uh, well, the EEA countries are in different respects and in different ways, there are differences of detail, but in principle, they've made a sovereign choice to align the single market rules without the power of decision over those rules, because as they judged as, as democratic institutions, uh, this was in their interests. There are three important differences that apply. First of all, Northern Ireland does not pay into the EU budget. The other countries have not only rule-taking relationship with the single market, but they, they pay for the privilege. Second point is that the four freedoms in relation to the single market aren't being applied in Northern Ireland, especially freedom of movement was probably one of the most controversial issues throughout the whole of the Brexit debate. And Northern Ireland has uniquely participation in the single market without the obligation to accept free movement of labour. And what we were told uh, in, back in the early stages of our engagement as the Northern Ireland Civil Service with the, the EU post-referendum, post we were told that Northern Ireland was just about small enough for exceptional treatment to be granted. And that's 
I think an important point. It certainly, was an important point in my mind going to going to Edinburgh, uh, who quite like quite a lot of what we've got. The other third point that's different, of course, is that Northern Ireland is a region rather than a country. So while for Norway the choice is simple, um, they, they have the choice between staying in dynamic alignment or in extremis losing their, their participation in the single market. So that's a, it's a straightforward choice. For, uh, for Northern Ireland as a region of the UK, um, the, the issues are potentially more invidious, invidious. It might be which market to, to stay aligned to. And that, that's why this does require much more thoughtful and detailed analysis and why I think it's, it's worth probing into dormant break and what that all means. There's been very, very good and detailed analysis presented by Jess Sargent from IFG, by Simon Usherwood, Colin Murray and others. They've, they've done super work in analyzing all the tests, stages and criteria. Stepping, stepping back from that detail, it does seem to me that we're looking at uh, what I would call a, a cliff edge risk. Uh, if you uh, speaking as a, as a you know, sometime occasional hill walker or cliff walker, you walk too close to the edge, the consequences can be catastrophic. If you walk a reasonable distance away from the edge, the risk is negligible. So that just affects a perspective on this and behavior. And I would also have to say, I think, I think the whole issue is probably harder in theory in the abstract than it will be in practice. I would be surprised if most of what happens looking ahead on the evolution of, of uh, regulatory alignment, uh, most of the changes will be technical and uncontroversial. And obviously a lot depends on how the UK perceives these things and what serves their self-interest, even with the freedoms they have under the, under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement to diverge, which was obviously what, what they would regard um, Brexit as being all about. So just, just uh, thinking about those scenarios and the flow diagrams, they're, 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 there's been some brilliant work done. Um, I think cutting to the end point, potentially difficult point that arises would be if after all the tests and hurdles and consultations and negotiations that are referred to, and in a highly exceptional case, what happens if something arises which can't be resolved? And paragraph 64 of the UK command paper, and some of the Secretary of State's comments would suggest that there's a need for cross-community vote in the Northern Ireland Assembly to adopt positively a change that's, that's emerged, which has, has been put to the test in this process. Now, when I first thought about that, thought, well, well, hold on a moment, how can it be democratic for a minority in Northern Ireland to prevent something that a majority might favor? You could have a whole philosophical debate about majority rights as well as minority rights. That's a, there's a, you know, one of the books on my shelves which actually addresses that, that, that question. It's fascinating. Um, if, if that, I think in fairness though, we should only reach that point if all the tests have been applied. And so we are looking at something which has material impact, have significant effect on the 
at least the perception, if not the reality, but of the of Northern Ireland's place in the UK. But it's also will only arise if it's essential for ongoing participation in the single market. Because otherwise, otherwise, the risk of EU retaliation or consequences would, would not arise. So, um, I go back to 1992 and I had a small part in the work. Uh, alongside the Mayhew talks on the design of the Strandwood institutions. The question we always looked at in that context was, uh, what's the default? What happens, you can design all sorts of elaborate, uh, elaborate processes, but what if, they, if there's no agreement, what, what, what applies? And what we adopted, and this, this actually does, is hardwired into uh, the decision-making in with the executive and the assembly, uh, it, it, under the Good Friday Agreement. Standard answer is that if there's no agreement, the status quo remains. So on the one hand, it can be argued that from first principles that where a major concern rises, storm and break is invoked, then correctly cross-community agreement should be required to complete the change. I think the alternative, the other, other way it could be put uh, maybe, maybe the question is whether the status quo, which should be the default, is that the precise set of regulations that apply on the one hand, or is it the principle of dynamic alignment with the EU single market? Um, that it seems to me there's still scope for debate as, as to as to which which way way to look at it, uh, and I don't have a technical answer to that. I think that's something that probably needs further debate and, and the even paragraph 64 I mentioned uh, is a, a need for detail on this to emerge and be brought through um, the parliamentary process. I just wonder if it might be better for the first vote at the level of principle, which is scheduled for next year, the, the vote on consent as originally provided for in the protocol, it might be better for that to happen before any particular test arises. Maybe that's a natural thing anyway, uh, because um, the hurdles that apply to the storm and break. But that's just, uh, I think that's that's where things are interesting. Um, if if um, the approach that the UK seems to be proposing is adopted, then consequences, the reason I describe this as a cliff edge, you know, if it takes us back to looking at the whole debate as to how to manage an open land border without sufficient protection of the single market, then that, that's a big issue. It's not a new point in that it could have arisen under the original protocol, under the provisions in relation to new EU law where uh, agreement in the Joint Committee was required, but the storm break widens the scope for that and opens up that possibility. And I would have to say, I think there's not likely to be much appetite for coming back to those issues in whatever time it might be. So far better to see if we can stabilize and, and, and get to something which is certain and stable for going for the position going forward. Um, all of that supposes, and I think there's very good reason to expect that this is um, detailed and sincere on behalf of both the UK and the EU, that this is a genuine agreement. Uh, there was a lot of discussion on 
the retained EU law bill yesterday in Scotland, uh, the phrase was used, this is performative government. Um, and it's, it's about the ideology of, of being seen to be different as opposed to the practical application of difference uh, for which there's a, you know, there's a respectable um, reasonable case. Uh, so I think we, everyone should be aware of the risk of mischief. Uh, I'm, I'm sincerely hoping that that's not the case, but I think it's important not to, um, not to rule out that possibility and, and to be, be wary of it. So stepping back really just to conclude on the, the, the total picture, uh, I, I do think it's a bit hyperbolic to say that dual market access is the best of both worlds. That was a, an unwise phrase. I probably fell into the trap of using it myself way back in uh, autumn of 19 or early in 2020. Uh, I think what is factually demonstrable is that the outcome before us, the Windsor framework provides a valuable uh, and unique opportunity for Northern Ireland. It wouldn't be available in the United Ireland. That's again, demonstrable fact. Um, Northern Ireland really needs stability and certainty for businesses. I think that should be a massively important criterion looking at all of this. And having a, a USP is a really um, important thing. That, that's, that's something we've never had. And there's more hope and expectation of that through the Windsor framework than uh, I can remember. Important also to recognize that any evaluation of this proposal can only be meaningful if, if there's a viable alternative. And if, if we accept the trilemma and that the UK has the two that the UK chose uh, actively and consistently were avoiding a hard land border, and, and they've been, even in recent months, very clear and consistent that that is one of their choices, and the choice of leaving the single model of the customs union uh, as at least for, for Great Britain, then um, if you choose the, those, then something like this model is inevitable. There's, there's, that's, that's where we, we go. And the, uh, the only question is how to de-dramatize it, make it as practically manageable, as, as low key as possible. Um, I think there's awkwardnesses around some of the seven tests that I've written and talked about the active union, which uh, I think should be reasonably clear that that's not actually compatible with the 1998 Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and that it came into the debate because of the way the court case went on the challenge. Uh, but I find it, find it disturbing that that was referred to in um, the protocol bill and is in the in, in a lot of the rhetoric that's around. Uh, it, is, is that is that I'll ask the question: Is that really something we're looking at um, in 21st century trade policy? Uh, so more generally, in all the discussions over nearly seven years, something like the Windsor Framework Protocol, that approach, I haven't seen any, any better idea, and, and I think that's part of the question I would always put back. If not this, then what? What what actual alternative is there available? So while it's I think, unwise to oversell the winter framework, it is complicated. It does involve major compromises, but not an immense amount of detail. 
but stepping back, it seems to me to present a very real and significant opportunity to draw a line under a, a very difficult debate, move forward, that it is a new way forward for uh, Northern Ireland internally, uh, for the UK, for the relationships between the UK and the EU. And that, that's my general impression. Uh, and hopefully, uh, hope that, that things can and will settle. So that, that's what I wanted to say. I think I'm happy to, to go into uh, questions and discussion. This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA, sharing ideas, shaping policy.